Would you all pray with me, please? Father, I do thank you so much for this group. Thank you that we can meet together and study your word. And thank you for being such an awesome, powerful, loving God, patient and merciful, but also holy and just. And Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to understand you as you've revealed yourself to us. I pray you'll give us wisdom as we discuss the topic this evening. Help us to all have open minds and help us to learn from one another. Thank you so much for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, welcome back to our Wednesday night class called God Behaving Badly, based on this book by David Lamb called God Behaving Badly. So today we are talking about, is God racist? Now, if I were to give a test at the end of this class, it would be super easy, because generally the answer is no <laughs> on all of these, okay? So I don't think I'm giving much away there. But this is a criticism that is levied against God and against the Bible, okay? So I, last week I mentioned words of the day, and I do like words of the day. So my word of the day today is sesquipedalian. Anyone know what a sesquipedalian is? One and a half. One and a half. It's a long word, foot and a half long word. So a sesquipedalian means a long word. So a sesquipedalian is a, a sesquipedalian. <laughs> and and you can easily remember that because hippopotamonstros sesquipedaliophobia is a fear of long words. So it has sesquipedalia in there. <laughs> okay. So, quick review. First week, you recall, was an introduction where it was my motivation for teaching this class. How God is often criticized, the Old Testament is often criticized. I gave a quote by Richard Dawkins, which talks about how what a horrible God as portrayed in the Old Testament. So we talked about that. We talked about the importance of understanding culture. So basically an introduction to what we're talking about today. Then we talked about, is God angry or loving? And the answer was, yes. <laughs> I mean, God gets angry. There's clear examples of God getting angry, but he always had a good reason. There's always a reason for the anger that he, but he's much more often described as being long-suffering and loving and patient. Last week, we talked about a God sexist or affirming. And so, again, this one I'm actually going to give the bullets. And again, I, a lot of my slides here have lots of words. Two reasons. One is I'm not an expert on this, so I can't just wing it like when I'm teaching at the Air Force Academy. I don't need any of my notes, but I can't do that here. Um, and also, these are intended to be handouts. If in case you want my slides, I'm happy to give them to you, and it has more information on them, which I think has some value. So some critics claim the people who claim scriptures are sexist are usually taking them out of their cultural context. So they're, they're evaluating them with our mind frame instead of the context in which they were written. Old Testament laws and Jesus were extremely progressive in their treatment of women for the time. And we need to remember the culture was quite different than ours. So this is a true, in terms of all biblical interpretation, is we have to be very careful of bringing in our Western <coughs> presuppositions when we're reading something that was written thousands of years ago. And they view the very world very different than we do. So in general, the Bible is very affirming of women, saying God, man, God made man and woman in his image, which is really a, you know, I think the highest statement of equality between men and women. <clears throat> okay, so today we're talking about racism. So again, I did a quick Google search. 
Bible and racism, God and racism. Here are some things I came up. This is a quote from NBC, an article. Racism among white Christians is higher than among the non-religious. That's no coincidence. So, interesting article. And then we see pictures like this. Jesus saves, and then we have all these Ku Klux Klan people. Ku Klux Klan was very big in southern churches. I mean, they from what, the 40s? I don't know when this was, but it, it's just shocking when you see that, for me, a disconnect mm -hmm. between Jesus' message and we see Ku Klux Klan people and Jesus saves. And then this is a book called, Is God a White Racist? And it's talking about uh, a preamble to black theology, which I don't know much about. But so there's a, you know, this is obviously a topic of interest among people. So I always like to start with the discussion question. So why do you think some people would claim God is racist or the Bible is racist? Yeah, Mike. Because it talks about slavery, and yet it doesn't talk about black slavery. It just talks about slavery. And people associate slavery with American slavery. Okay, so people associate slavery with American slavery. No There's certainly no slavery in the Bible. The word slave means black slaves from America. Okay, and we'll talk no about that. Yes? Uh, Genesis 3.20 says that Eve would become the mother of all living. So if that's true, where did race, races come from? If they, we all came from the same set of parents. Well, that's another question is why shouldn't we be racist? But I appreciate you jumping to the other questions. <laughs> <laughs> Where did races come from if we all came from Eve? We were, yeah. scat we were scattered. Well, and I'll talk, so, so race, the concept of race, based on my cursory research, was actually became prevalent in the Enlightenment period when people wanted to classify and characterize things. I mean, they did that with the, the natural world, so they wanted to classify and characterize people. Different race, different race, different race. And the problem with that is it tends to lead to, well, we're different as opposed to we're all created in the image of God. But uh, in race, from my understanding, was largely popu become popular in the Enlightenment time. Are the reasons people would claim God is racist? I think some people claim God is racist because they view God not as who God is, but who people misrepresent him as. I think that is a key. They claim God is racist because they see behaviors in the church that are racist. Behaviors in the church in the past. So the, the Christians as a reflection of God have not been driven. So I think that's one of the main reasons. Okay, turn this way and say that. Okay. <laughs> so she said that the people claim God is racist because they look at churches and Christians who are racist. And then they say God is racist. Yes. Okay. Because God chose the Israelite, meaning he didn't choose either. So. Okay, God chose the Israelites. Okay. Any other reasons you think people would claim God is racist? He told the Israelites to clean out Canaan. Okay. He told the Israelites to clean out Canaan. Genocide. Genocide. So this author claimed two primary reasons. I think everything people said has been good. <clears throat> but he, the author presents the view that in the 19th century, Christians used Old Testament texts to support slavery on the basis of race. They used to, so they supported slavery based on the Bible, <clears throat> which gives the impression that the church, God, Christianity is racist. And then God is assumed to have commanded the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites because of their ethnicity, which would be genocide. Yeah? But it's, I thought 
back in those days, pretty much it wasn't so much, slavery wasn't so much a matter of what race you were, but whether you were the conquered or unconquered. Oh, back in, back in the ancient Near East, absolutely. So again, but I will share the verses that they used to support slavery. Okay, so we'll talk about, it's not just the fact that there was slavery. In the might, Old you might need to clarify that we're talking about in the 19th century in America. 19th century in America, Christians supported slavery. Again, you'll have the whole Civil War. But they used the Old Testament to support slavery. And we'll see the verses they used. But the two, I did not read that they said, well, there was slavery in the Old Testament, so slavery is okay. That wasn't the argument they used. Wasn't the order to kill the Canaanites not because of their ethnicity, but because of their sinful behavior and their worship well, idols and, and all of that, it wasn't because of a particular, I didn't believe it was because of a particular race. It was a tribe of people that became idol worshippers. Okay, so we'll talk about these two things. <laughs> so we'll get to it. And you're absolutely right. There's no evidence at all that the Israelites killed any Canaanites because of their ethnicity. Okay, but there's a number of possible reasons and explanations of the conquest that we're going to look at in this class. Okay, so if you define race, and again, as I prepare this, you have to be careful about defining race versus ethnicity. But if you define racism as prejudice based on distinctions among the primary, if you call races, European, African, Asian, then you don't see any of that in the Bible. You don't see any examples of prejudice or behavior on what we would call race today. Okay. Now, if you see prejudice based on nationality or ethnicity, we do see that sort of activity in the Bible. Um, but so they might appear racist in that case. But based on, just on what we would call race in terms of color, or whatever, you don't see that in the Bible. Okay. So what are some arguments? that God is not racist and Christians shouldn't be racist. And we already have the main one, which was... God's not respect. God, we're all created in his image. We're one people. So we're all a family, if you will. So how can there possibly be this sort of racism? Unless, again, if you come from a very naturalistic, you don't believe in God, then you could potentially put people in different categories and judge people differently. So I think Christianity is the strongest support against racism because we have a rationale and a reason for treating everyone with respect. Uh, other arguments that God is not racist and we should not be racist. God told Philip to go convert the Ethiopian. Okay, converting the Ethiopian. We see lots of examples of foreigners being held up in high regard. In the Bible, Jonah to Nineveh, he forgave the Ninevites. The, who was the racist in that story? Jonah. <laughs> he, he he did not have a positive view of the Ninevites, and that's not saying it's not justified based on their history together. But he he was yeah okay. Another comment over here. God commanded the Israelites to leave corners of their fields for the fourth and we will actually look at all the verses that it talks about how to treat foreigners and aliens. And it's really um, enlightening just how progressive the Bible is in terms of that. Yes? They were supposed to pray for the nations. Yeah. They were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. So you said they called the Israelites, and not, but the Israelites were supposed to be blessings to all nations. Yeah. Well, like the great commandment, go into all nations. 
Yeah. Are we putting racism and slavery together? No. No. But, like I said, in the 19th century, they did use the Bible to support slavery. Okay? So, and again, I think this is the strongest argument. We're all one family. We're all creating the image of God. We're all related to one another. We shouldn't be treating someone badly based on external color, whatever. Okay, so let's look at the verse that is often used or was used to support slavery in the 19th century. Someone want to read this for us? And I, I, we're going to read it once, and then I want you to make observations, <coughs> comments on this. Any volunteers? Rachel, thank you. <laughs> the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Okay, so what questions come to mind as you read this passage? Why? Why? What do you mean, why? Well, the, the sons were not cursed. It was, well, that's a whole other story. But again, it says, what is it they saw him naked or saw him uncovered inside Hale, the tent? Hale looked at his father's nakedness. The other two boys protected his nakedness. And what does that actually mean? Is that a euphemism for something else? I've read about five different interpretations of what is the offense of Ham here that is so offensive? Instead of taking care of it himself, he went and got attention of his two brothers to bring them in. To well, the two brothers actually did something good, right? They right, exactly. They didn't lay eyes upon their father. They backed in respectfully. He wasn't respectful. So other questions you have on this passage? There's a glaring question in my mind. Why curse Canaan? Why curse Canaan? Ham is the one that did this. Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan had other children as well. Genetic, and I mean, just from some of the things that I've studied, supposedly Ham <coughs> moved with, into northern Africa or whatever, and he was like dark. That's why he was named Ham, because his skin was dark. We will, and so actually, all of Ham's children are typically associated with yeah. Africa. Let's let's did look at this. Didn't we? Did we just talk? <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago about uh, something along those lines of <clears throat> curses and blessings going from generation to generation to generation and so if that was a practice in that culture it would it wouldn't be panned to say that Canaan is cursed just because he's a son of Ham well if if generations are being penalized because it's a, what we're talking about, their, their community, rather than... But his other children, Cush, is not penalized in 
is another son. Well, maybe he and, was, maybe he had the, the bad luck of being born first. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he, was the first son? I mean, he was not the first son. Okay. He was actually the youngest son. So God clearly knew something about Canaan. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, you just said God clearly, and I and, and Noah's the God one that does this curse. Finish. It's yeah. not God. God didn't curse him. Okay, so there are a lot of theories about what this offense actually was. One was seeing his father naked, the lack of respect. Another one was paternal incest, and this was a euphemism. Another one was maternal incest. There was one thing that said Canaan was the child of Ham and his mother. And Canaan was the child, was another theory that was put forth. Um, castration was another thing, that he castrated his father, and that's why he didn't have any more kids. It's like, there's a lot of things, but none of them are supported by the passage itself. I mean, you have to bring in some inferences there. But it was something pretty bad, okay, whatever it was. Um... So the story was used in the 19th century to support slavery. Ham's descendants are generally thought to be Africans, dark-skinned in Africa. And Jephthah's descendants were typically thought to be European, and, Jeff and, and Ham's descendants, Canaan's descendants will support Jephthah. So you can see, though, they're supposed to be subservient to us. This is all part of the curse. Okay, but that doesn't hold up water in my this was the argument that was made and i think there's several problems with this one is the curse was uttered not by god but by noah so this was not a god-ordained curse here and the curse targeted only canaan and not ham or ham's other sons cush and egypt which are clearly related to africa cush is the southern nile valley and egypt is egypt <laughs> so uh so they're obviously connected with Africa as well. So we, but we don't see a curse for them. We see Canaan. Yeah. In Northern Africa, though, not everyone is, is black. Kush is yes. You're right. There's a di I mean, there's a spectrum of darkness of skin. Mm -hmm. People in Kush were known for being quite dark. Okay. So I don't think you could make the argument. Well, Egypt, they were just, you know, they looked like Europeans. I don't think that's the case. I would imagine it was kind of. Mix. Well, so the curse of Canaan, another reference I read, that foreshadows the conflict between Israelites and the Canaanites. The Canaanites were, we already talked about, they were coming in, and this is sort of foreshadowing that conflict between Israel and the Canaanites. I don't know if it's justifying that, but that was another potential reason for the Canaanite. But to me, it's not totally clear why Canaan instead of Ham, what the offense was. Um, but it's a question, but it certainly cannot be used, in my opinion, to support racism. Okay, have you heard this one? Moses' wife. So this, I'll go ahead and read this. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. And so some observations on this passage. Cush is in the southern Nile Valley, and they would have been very dark-skinned. That's the type of people that live there, or lived there. Older commentaries, if you read commentaries for the 19th century, they will talk about the Cush as being a slave race because they were black. Um, dark-skinned implied inferiority, and that somehow she was from a slave race. 
And this came from this book. So this is another reference I'm using, Misinterpreting Scripture Through Western Eyes. So again, some people would use this to say interracial marriage is wrong. You know, Moses shouldn't have married this woman, and Miriam and Aaron were calling him out on it. That's not what's happening here. So what's really going on in these verses here? The Nile Valley, you have to remember this, Nile Valley of ancient Egypt, the Hebrews were the slaves. Everyone else was free. The Hebrews were the slave race primarily. So immediately when we think of African-American or black people, we think slaves, then we are immediately bringing in a cultural bias. And certainly in the 19th century they did this. At this time, the Hebrews were the slaves. The Cushites were not demeaned as a slave race, but in the ancient world, they were high re highly regarded as skilled soldiers. So they sort of have a reputation for being skilled warriors, the Cushites. So they would have been a, a, a viewed very highly. So one interpretation of this is that Aaron and Miriam were complaining to Moses because he was thinking he was better than he ought to be. You know, he's presumptuous because he married above himself. He married a Cushite, so he thinks he's so much better than us which is not the way we would necessarily automatically think about this. But I think it's supported if you read the rest of the verse. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses, they ask. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And then the next verse is, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So I like this verse because I think it clearly shows that Moses did not write the five books of the Bible. Because he couldn't have written that, right? I can't write, I'm the most humble man in the whole world. Because by default, if I write that, then I've completely violated that. And again, if you go back to my class on Lost World of Scripture, it was an oral culture that was eventually written down. But this is an oral tradition that was carried down. And that doesn't mean he didn't write some things. Because we read in that God said, write this down. But that doesn't mean he transcribed every word in the first five books of the Bible. I don't think that's the way... We think of that as a written culture instead of an oral culture. But the fact that the whoever wrote this says Moses was a very humble man, he's basically saying he wasn't being above himself. He wasn't being pretentious. So I think it supports the contention that their complaint was, um, you know, we're also prophets. What about us is really what they yeah, were wanting. Which is a very humble statement. <laughs> this right? one. Get the last one. Uh, what, what, what Aaron and Miriam were saying. Yeah. Very humble. <laughs> so Moses is not the only prophet here. Who does he think he is? But the, the, the main point of this is we can bring in, when we can read a situation like that, we don't really understand why they were bringing up his Cushite wife. But it could be for different reasons than we necessarily think based on our own worldview and what's happening in our world. <clears throat> okay, the other major one is the Canaanite conquest, okay? So I need someone to read this for me. I think, Kay, you raised your hand before. <clears throat> so Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He just totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. The Israelites carried off with themselves all the plunder and livestock in these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, 
and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so the, the challenging part of this passage, and I know Eddie talked about Joshua, and I will share various views on interpreting this, but phrases like, he left no survivors, he totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord commanded. So it seems like God is commanding kill everyone. God is commanding genocide, if you will. That's the accusation that is made. Um, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed, as the Lord commanded. So, again, this is one of the things that uh, Richard Dawkins said, God is genocidal because of this Canaanite conquest. So how do you respond to someone who asks you, how can you worship a God who commanded genocide? How would you respond to that? <laughs> I would say, um, it doesn't really matter what I think, it's what he thinks. So. Okay. We do, we're, we're here for him, right? He, you know, yeah, he's here for us in a way, but who are we to question his motives? Okay, so that is one possible answer. I would phrase that as God is God, he can do what he wants. But I would claim that's sort of unsatisfying. It wouldn't be very convincing to someone else. Yeah, Alan? Because it wasn't genocide. Okay, <laughs> because it wasn't genocide. So they're miscategorizing this as genocide. And it seems like our culture has a hard does that all the time. Mm -hmm. We read that the Israelites are committing genocide against the Palestinians. I don't, you know, the Nazis against the Jews. That seemed like they were trying to kill them all. When you look at the genocide in Rwanda, they had neighbors killing neighbors. They were trying to kill them all. I read this horrible story of these, what's up, Tutsis? They were the ones that were killed. They were taking refuge in a church. And the priest of the church locked them in and got the rebels to kill them all. And I just read that he was brought up on, you know, war crimes. But you read stories like that where they were going to the church for sanctuary, but then they were killed by the very people that were supposed to give them sanctuary. How do you think that would make you feel about the church or God? Not very good, I would say. And so, but I do think we tend to throw out the term genocide. Now, there have been genocides. I don't think this one was. Well, how would you define genocide? Destruction of an entire race. Destruction of an entire race because of their race. There's certainly hatred. There's a dehumanization. It's like... You can, I think you can only do that if there are no, you no longer consider them people. You no longer consider them of any value. Less than human. That's right. You're, it's just like an animal or something. Yeah, Jeff. I, I don't know where it's at, but I think God told Moses or, or, or Joshua that, the, that these people, the Canaanites, haven't gotten, they're awful, but they haven't gotten to the point that I want to eliminate them. Yeah, and, and so that's, again, we're not going to bring up that verse, but it does say that. And we'll talk about possible explanations, how people explain this, okay? So first thing to recognize is, in terms of what's going on here, this was not them killing because of their ethnicity. They were coming into the land to, base, and, and most wars were fought to expand territory. Babylon is increasing its territory, Assyria is conquering other nations. That's not the situation here. And this situation is 
the Israelites wanted to return to their ancestral homeland. They had a claim to this land. And so they were coming back home from that, is what they would have said, and which is different than most other wars at the time. Um, we could argue that they had a legitimate right to reclaim the land of their ancestors. Um, they were refugees who had just experienced 400 years of slavery, and they were coming into this land that belonged to their forefathers. Um, their ancestors live in the land, so they are just repossessing the land that belonged to their family. God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants. And the gift of the land was the primary way God planned to bless Israel. <clears throat> and it was through the land that God would work his ultimate purpose to bless and call all people to himself. So there's a lot of verses that talk about that. Okay, So it's different than most other wars of conquest at the time. Okay, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I don't think many people would find that a satisfactory answer. No, I, I agree. There's parts that, well, just because they had it doesn't mean they have a right to it anymore. But it is different than... I, I agree with that answer. Like, <laughs> the, I, re I read that, but I've had this conversation. No, I, I completely... And, and there is no answer that, that people that are non-believers or questioners of this, they, they, don't, they don't accept it. No and I think that's a good bottom line. There is no answer that's going to satisfy everyone. And I don't have an answer that I'm completely satisfied with. I mean, there, I think there are different perspectives here, okay? What I'm trying to give us is some ammunition, some way of thinking about this issue um, to give us a little more you know, clarity, perhaps. But you're right. I, I don't think that would be perfectly satisfying. Okay, so first thing I want to mention, typically in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon to wipe out the enemy. I mean, that was sort of the way wars were fought. But there is also, these accounts tend to be filled with hyperbole. And what's hyperbole? Exaggeration. exaggeration. They, it, it, these ancient Near East war accounts tend to be full of exaggeration. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. But I think that is, one, that doesn't mean people didn't die. That didn't mean they didn't kill people. But there is some exaggeration with these accounts. Okay? So let me give you some examples. This... All his friends called him Ash, so that's what I will do. <laughs> Ash of Assyria described how he burned mutilated hung captives, including boys and girls, so it's again, a horrible description. King Mesha of Moab erected a monument indicating he killed all the inhabitants, inhabitants of two Israeli, Israelite towns, including women and children. Again, this doesn't excuse Israelites killing women and children, but it's not an uncommon incidence. And there's an ancient text that says Israel was destroyed completely. This menphapta stele reads, Israel is wasted, its seed is not. So you read this sort of descriptions, Israel was completely destroyed. It's not true. We know that's not true. Okay, But that was sort of the hyperbole language of conquest. If you won a battle, it, you, like we just, you know, the football game, we destroyed them. That doesn't mean we actually destroyed them. There's some hyperbole there. And there was some hyperbole in these warrior descriptions of the conquests. Okay, let's look at some hyperbole. Joshua 10:40 and 11:12 through 15 speak of everyone being destroyed and leaving no survivors. And then later on in Joshua and Judges, repeatedly says Israel did not kill all the Canaanites. And they did not even drive them all out of the land. So we have this conquest. We destroyed them all. We couldn't even drive them all out of the land. So we see these 
differences here. Uh, Joshua 15, 63. I'll just pull one of the verses out. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. Okay, so there's some hyperbole when they say they destroyed them all, but then they're, they're there. And, uh, Bill, I just read this one yesterday, Deuteronomy 7.22. The Lord your God will drive out these stations before you little by little. You will not be able to destroy them all because the wild animals will become too numerous for you. Interesting. And I kind of missed that one for years. Yeah. So, uh, so I need someone to read this one for me. Thank you, Kat. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Okay, so there's two aspects of this verse. One is it talks about driving them out, and there are a lot of passages that talk about driving them out. But there is this end that says, then you must destroy them totally. And so what does that mean? Well, what do we think of? It means destroy, killing every man, woman, destroying them totally. Okay. Now it turns out that word, destroy them totally, is the word harem. And it's, it's translated in a number of different ways. One is utterly destroy. One is destroy totally. Place under the ban is a more literal definition of that. Uh, devote to destruction, ESV. The lost world of, let's see if I have that one. Lost world of the Israelite conquest is another book. They tend to describe, they define that as removing something from human use, which is still not clear. <clears throat> but it has a number of definitions. And the question is, what did it mean in that context? Well, I think reading the rest of this passage can help us understand that. So again, here's the verse 2. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. So someone want to read this next verse? Thank you. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons. For this will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly destroy, and will quickly destroy you. If you could read the next couple verses as well. Verse 5. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their astral poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people from the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. Okay, any questions do you have on this passage? If they're totally destroyed, if they aren't in. Yeah, if they're totally destroyed, why is he giving the prohibition to marry? It's really not an issue. If everyone has died, you don't have to say, don't marry the dead bodies. Okay? And I don't think that's what he's talking about here. So he says, don't marry them. Don't give your daughters to them. And then this is what you are to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their poles, burn their idols in the fire. So he's talking about basically destroying their religion, their culture, if you will. Their identity as Canaanites is what's being destroyed, not necessarily killing them all. So I saw hands, yeah. Um, well, back then, and maybe even now in a lot of cases, uh, it's pretty common 
for soldiers to, to take women of places they were raiding or whatever and bring them home. Mm -hmm. And there are other passages in the Old Testament we could talk about that talk about that. But, again, if it's to destroy them completely, then the rest of it doesn't make sense. Yes? Well, I think what you talked about earlier, the word destroy, I mean, like, our lives could be destroyed. We'd still be living, but our house could get burned down, we could lose our job, we could lose our money, we could lose our family. We could be like, Job was destroyed, you know, but he was still living. So I think that term of totally destroyed doesn't necessarily mean loss of all life. Yeah, so even in English, that word can mean different things. And we're looking at the Hebrew word harem. What does that mean? So we have to try to figure out in that culture. And it seems to be destroying the culture, at least in this I particular context. Part where Helping to destroy the culture is significant, breaking down the old. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Asherah poles and getting rid of all of that, because that's what offended God so much, was they were a pagan nation. It wasn't their race or their ethnicity, is they were idol worshippers and they sacrificed children to the other false gods. That's okay. He wanted that destroyed. Okay, so let's look at other examples of hyper hyperbole in Joshua. So Joshua 10, 36-39 records Joshua's victory over the two cities of Hebron and Debir. Both cities are recorded as having no survivors and being utterly destroyed. Then a few chapters later in Joshua 15, Caleb drives out the three sons of Anak from Hebron and the inhabitants of Debir. So it's like, okay, they were completely destroyed, but a few chapters later, now Caleb is driving them out. What's again? I think there's hyperbole in the first example. So, if the people were completely destroyed in chapter 10, how can there still be people remaining in chapter 14? It doesn't make sense. And that doesn't mean there are, oh, there are conflicts in the Bible. No, this is the genre of the literature that we're reading here. Okay, similar instance is seen in Joshua 11 21 and 22 where the Anakim and their cities are utterly destroyed by Joshua, but also driven out by Caleb, again, in Joshua chapter 14. So we see this, not a conflict, but different. Utterly destroyed doesn't mean killing everyone, or there's hyperbole here. Okay, archaeology also helps us see this, and this is some of our examples of hyperbole in other cultures, so we can see that was not an uncommon way of this... Uh, war literature. So a stele, which is a slab of wood or stone erected in the ancient world as a memorial, was discovered in 1868 that records the deeds of the Moabite king Mesha in overthrowing Israel's subjugation of Moab in the 9th century BC. The stele records Israel has utterly perished forever, which we know is not true, but from their perspective they are the victors of this particular battle, so they can say that. Uh, we see the same language in the Moabite steel as we do in the accounts of the conquest where we see utterly perished forever would indicate Israel had been totally annihilated, which we know is not true. And so this was common in the ancient Near East. That surrounded, the people that surrounded Israel, this would not have been an uncommon way of describing battle. Frequently used by chroniclers and historians of the area to describe massive total victory over a foe. That's just the way it was described. Okay, so was the Israelite conquest of Canaan genocide? We already talked about that. It really 
in my mind, doesn't meet the definition of genocide. The other destruction does not necessarily require killing everyone, and even if they did kill it, it wasn't because of their ethnicity. Um, the textual evidence would argue that the concept of genocide was never the intended goal of the conquest. That wasn't why they did this. And the point of the conquest was to move them out, to dispossess them from the land, to drive them out so Israel could take the promised land as they were promised by God. That was sort of the main point of this conquest. So, turns out there are, I found at least eight explanations for understanding this difficult passage. I'm going to share all eight of them. And I don't agree with all of them, but I think it's interesting the things people come up with. So, possibility one, and I've, I've heard people say this, and I've read a book. Scripture is fallible. These violent scriptures are simply the result of human influence on scriptures. So the people writing this said, God said this, but God never really said this. Problem with that one and the next two, I think it takes a very low view of scripture. It's sort of like... I can just pick and choose what I want. Oh, God wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I think God would have done that. It's like I'm the arbiter of what I'm calling reliable truth from God instead of we have to take the Bible as inspired. Now we have to, doesn't mean there aren't challenging passages, but often it's rooted in their culture that we have struggles with. But this is one explanation, and I've seen this, that you know we need to evaluate everything in the light of Jesus. If we see something inconsistent with Jesus' character, then that wasn't of God. So they throw out lots of the Old Testament. And we saw, what was his name? The heretic, Marcion. Second century heretic basically did this. Possibility two, God wore a mask or hid his face in certain texts of the Old Testament in order to allow human agents to carry out the violence in their hearts. So this view claims God is willing to hide his true loving nature from us and present himself as evil in order to work with the fallen human beings. Like I said, I don't understand all these either, <laughs> but I thought I would share them. Possibility three, God got himself dirty. That is, he was willing to make cultural accommodations. And, this, and we know God did make cultural accommodations, right? He says, Jesus taught that there are accommodations in the church. Moses permitted you to divorce. God didn't want that in the original plan, but Moses permitted you. That would be an accommodation. Or, we want a king, we want a king. God didn't want them to have a king, but he allowed them to have a king. So he's accommodating to what they want. They would say, well, everyone was killing everyone, so he, they just accommodated the Israelites to war the same way. Again, I'm not sure I, I buy that as well. Possibility four allegorization so this is like origin who was origin anyone know early church father very prolific wrote a lot of stuff and so origin's approach to the passage seemed to if you have a passage that seems to conflict with moral or theological truth found in christ is that you can allegorize them for instance the destruction and driving out of the canaanites can be compared to how we should drive out sin from the church or drive out sin from our lives. It's like, and the, they like, and even Jews like to get multiple meanings associated with things. For me, the problem with this is it, it denies the original intent of the authors of this. <laughs> Whoever was writing this was not intending 
this to be an allegorization of sin in our lives. They're saying this is the conquest of Israel into the promised land that God gave us. So I think it denies the original intent of the authors. Um, five, hyperbole. There's certainly, we've talked about there is hyperbole. Possibility six, the descriptions are literal and God's moral right. We already said that God could basically do what he wants, which is true, um, but not satisfying in my mind. And I think there are explanations, like we've already talked about them taking the promised land, and it wasn't really genocide. Possibility seven, giants, the Nephilim. Michael Heiser, is he the primary proponent, Alan? So Alan and I have discussed this, and I have to confess I haven't read the book, so I can't say this is just not true, but in this view, it's the view that the ancient Jews believed the Canaanites were the descendants of the Nephilim, and therefore they needed to be destroyed completely. I struggle with that, but like I said, I haven't read the book or the evidence to support that view. It wouldn't have been all the Canaanites, it would have been mostly those associated with the seven tribes that were listed that you the previously. <clears throat> so again, those, that... those seven were targeted, because there's other verses that say if you come across a city or town, Give them a chance to surrender. If they do, that's great. If they don't, well, kill the men, not the women and children. So even within Judges, there's a distinction made between those seven tribes and the general population. Why do you struggle with uh, possibility number seven being? Uh, again, I've just not studied it enough, and I don't. You, you don't see the mention of the Nephilim anywhere in the book of Joshua. It talks about them being large. Obviously, the spies said that. So I think there are some inferences there that, again, I haven't explored yet. I haven't, I haven't read the book, and I haven't read the critiques of the book, and that's what I like to do. But I wanted to share that as another possibility that people have. And then possibility eight, the Canaanite nations were very evil and wicked, and therefore this was judgment, which is a very common view. You've already mentioned that, Fred. And the support for this view is there certainly seems to be an element of divine judgment when we look at scriptures um, against the Canaanites. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there's, it discusses just how evil they were. Um, elsewhere in the Old Testament, God does punish evil nations, including Israel. So Israel is also punished with death and exile. We see that in Amos, we see that in Jeremiah. So we do see God punishing nations. Um, if God were racist, he would punish other nations and not punish his own nation, but he seems to be an equal opportunity judger of bad behavior. So again, big picture of this class is God racist, and I think it's an easy answer on this particular one. So those are the arguments that sort of support it. We didn't read a lot of scriptures here, but I've also read some books that sort of argue against this. And the arguments against this is they say that this characterization of the Canaanites as so evil, so reprehensible, is a common literary trope for this type of literature. You always paint your enemy as the other, as the completely depraved, and it's sort of it's a justification for destroying them, and that maybe they weren't any worse than the other nations around. So that was one author that I read. Um, the Canaanites were not under the law, so they couldn't really be punished for disobeying the law because they weren't under the law. And that doesn't mean they, they worshipped idols. They weren't commanded not to worship idols. They were not God's people. So they couldn't have been judged for disobedience to the law or idolatry. And we also don't see, after the conquest, 
we don't see the Israelites going beyond their borders to punish other nations for idolatry or doing the same thing that the Canaanites were doing. So we don't see them sort of exercising judgment. That doesn't mean judgment wasn't part of it. It clearly seems to be. But I think it's more nuanced than that. Um, and I think it really was taking this promised land for the people of Israel to have this sort of holy place for them to live. Okay. Um, now let's look at how the Bible describes foreigners, because I think this is a more interesting aspect than looking at these really difficult. But the, there were laws that said you were to treat foreigners like Israelites. Leviticus 24, 22, you are to have the same laws for foreigners and the native born. I am the Lord your God. This was not true in every culture at that time. Numbers 9, 14, a foreigner resides among you is also to celebrate the Lord's Passover in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for both the foreigner and the native born. Numbers 15, 15, and 16. The community is to have the same rules for you and for foreign residents residing among you. That is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and the foreigners residing among you. Uh, Rachel, could you read this one? The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And that seems to be a big theme. You're to treat the foreigners well because you were at one time foreigners. That should give you some sensitivity. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, do not deprive the foreigners or the fatherless of justice. Do not take the cloaks from widows as a pledge. Deuteronomy 27, curses is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And again, when you read all these verses, it doesn't sound like God is racist against other peoples. I mean, he's telling them, treat the same, treat them the same. So I don't think you can view the Canaanite conquest in terms of ethnic terms at all. Okay, we also see, you know, if we see a lot of favorable views of foreigners in the Bible, and if God were racist, that wouldn't be the case. We see Ruth, woman from Moab, one of Israel's traditional enemies, is brought into the people of God and becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Jonah, again, he was the racist. He didn't have a very good view of the Ninevites, but they were allowed to repent. God spared them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, God revealed his power to foreign emperors, leading them to praise God. Naaman, the commander of, God's, of, commander of the army of Syria, was healed when he listened to a young slave girl. The fact the story is included indicates the author wanted us to know that God welcomes and heals and loves foreigners. We see a number of very examples of foreigners being blessed. Um, we also, if, we, if we look at Jesus, what's unique about Jesus' genealogy is there are some women in it. Generally, you would not include women in the genealogies. And so we have Tamar and Rahab. And... Rahab was Canaanite, and Tamar, there's debate over whether she was Canaanite or not. 
Um, some of the references I said they said that she was, other ones said she was not. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was married to a Hittite, but her name is 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 Hebrew. So again, depending on what you, some people say, oh no, she was a Hittite because she was married to a Hittite. Other ones say, no, she was a Hebrew married to a Hebrew. It's unclear. At least two of these for sure were foreign women. Um, and the other two might have been. It's, it's unclear to me based on what I read. We see him talking to a Samaritan woman. He heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. And then he cleared that out of her temple, the temple of the Gentiles. And he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So again, he doesn't have this just Israel mindset. That's the portrayal of Jesus is, again, showing love to everyone. Um, the Good Samaritan is about racism. So we have the priest and the Levite avoid the injured man, and there is the assumption that the injured man is an Israelite. I think everyone listening to the story would have recognized that. And then you have this Samaritan coming along. This would have been a shocking story at the time. And so the Good Samaritan goes above and beyond, and he takes care of this. We all know this story. But it really is a story about racism and loving people not of your own culture, help loving who is your neighbor, basically, right? So one thing in the book that I thought was interesting is that the author claims that Jesus wouldn't have liked the way we title it, The Good Samaritan. Sort of like, how? what if there was a story called The Good American? Because there's only one of them. <laughs> we would be, that's uh, just not right. But we say The Good Samaritan sort of implies that they, so the Samaritan neighbor is how he would have titled it in the, in the Bible. Because um, there's that implication, maybe they're not all good. Okay, we have five minutes, and I have a three-minute video here. We'll see if it works. And I've just discovered this What Would You Say video series, and I like them, so that's why I'm sharing them. ...or maybe a diversity training. And the topic turns to systemic racism, and someone asks, are we all racist? What would you say? And I brought it, because I've heard that. I've heard people say, well, we're all racist. If you're white, you're racist. You don't necessarily mean to be racist, but you're racist. So that's what this video is talking about. Introspection is very important. Christians especially are led by scripture with the assistance of the Holy Spirit to assess our words and deeds and even our hearts and our motives. Today, it's not uncommon for accusations of racism to be weaponized in order to silence those who disagree with certain points of view. There's no shortage of books and videos instructing people about their fragility and shared guilt, offering unbiblical formulas to become allegedly anti-racist. Often the self-proclaimed anti-racist movement can be itself racist, making stereotypical assumptions about entire groups of people. Racism is a sin. And the solution to racism is only found in the one who rescues, redeems, and reforms us. When asking ourselves if we are racist, we must be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God, and we should repent any time that we fail to treat anyone as the valuable image bearer they are. But that doesn't mean we should assume that we are racist by default. The next time someone says that most people or all people of a particular group are racist, remember these three things. Number one, many accusations of racism today are in fact prejudgments. Just because someone throws out a label doesn't mean it is legitimate. 
Many accusations of racism lack a clear definition of what racism is. Think about it this way. If someone said that all women are anti-male feminists, would that be a fair accusation? Many women hold feminist views, but that doesn't make them anti-male. And many women don't hold feminist views at all. This accusation against an entire group of people would be unfair and inaccurate. Like saying that just because many sports fans drink alcohol, all sports fans are alcoholics. And just because some best-selling authors who profit from leveling these accusations label entire groups of people as racist, doesn't mean it is true. It's not uncommon for these authors to also accuse critics of fragility whenever their dogma is questioned. But the truth is every human being is fragile and prone to sin, no matter the hue of our skin. No one group of people holds a monopoly on racism. Racism is the sin of prejudgment. Today's surge of pious anti-racism often promotes racist assumptions about people solely based on the color of their skin to combat the alleged racism it claims it wants to eradicate. Which brings up the second point. Number two, not all calls for racial justice come from the same worldview. Christians should be champions of racial justice because of what the Bible teaches about who we are and what gives every human value. The anti-racist movement is built on critical race theory. Essentially, critical race theory teaches that there are two groups of people, the oppressed, which would include people of my complexion, and the oppressors, who are always white. The oppressors are always wrong and the oppressed are always right, not because of what they do, but because of the group they belong to. This victim of narrative creates a false moral hierarchy that is unbiblical. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means all. White supremacy, black supremacy, or any other form of racism are real and grave evils. Blaming entire groups of people for all of society's ills fails to truly and critically look at problems. It will not help us arrive at real answers. This worldview only perpetuates the dangerous and corrupting us versus them dichotomy that plagues our culture. Which leads to the third point. Number three, we can only truly confront evils in our society if we tell the truth. Understanding what is true and what isn't true about racism can be difficult. For example, many media and academic elites claim that America hasn't changed since 1619. This type of hyperbole and exaggeration make it difficult to discern what is true and what isn't. We can't let everything and everyone calling themselves anti-racist determine the narrative about race or fool us into believing that entire groups of people are racist by default or that their actual goal is to end racism. We must also hear and amplify other voices, voices of faith and reason who rely on biblical truths instead of cultural trends. Racism does exist, but the next time someone asks if we are all racist, Remember these three things. Number one, many accusations of racism today are in fact prejudgments. Number two, not all calls for racial justice come from the same worldview. Number three, we can only truly confront evils in our society if we tell the truth. For what would you say? I'm Ryan Bonner. Okay, I like that because there is racism and the church like what's said over here, one of the problems is people see racism in the church. They see how people are treated and then they 
have a bad view of God, and that is not the way it should be. So there's the bottom line. There's no evidence to support from scriptures that God is racist. There's no place for racism in the church, and God welcomed all nations and even commanded his people to be hospitable to foreigners. Any final comments, questions? We're about out of time, but I'll take one or two. Final comments, questions? I have a comment. Yes. I'm a foreigner, so you guys all have to be hospitable. <laughs> 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 okay. Any other comments? When I taught school, I was a teacher, and of course we worked with colors and stuff like this, and all of my students were black students. So I'm all black high school back in the early 70s. And I, when we got to doing portraits and stuff like that, and I started showing them that we're all just a certain shade of brown, a different shade of brown. There's no true black skin. There's no true paper white skin, and and I'd have them line up, line their arms up on the table, and you'd see all the different shades of of brown. I'd stick my arm in the middle of those shades of brown, and it it, it opened some of their eyes because it was about the same time that roots came out. So. <laughs> okay, well I appreciate. Yeah, one last comment. I, I didn't realize this that the word slavery actually means slop. Or slob. We so the actual word started from white slaves. Interesting, I didn't know that. Well, I appreciate everyone coming. Next week, we will discuss some other topic. <laughs> Is God violent or peaceful? And we'll actually revisit the Canaanite conquest. Okay, we'll see y'all later. Thanks for coming. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the East Side Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.